0: This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film Podcast, where we read the book. And then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James.
1: And this week we discuss Peter George's 1958 thriller, Red Alert. So I'm coming to you from my in-laws condo, uh, up the street a little bit from mine because they're doing some construction there. Uh, so if I sound a little different, maybe a little
0: more echoey, that's because I'm in a different room. It was generous of them to let you use that room. Very nice. Otherwise it would have been flapping plastic, right? Uh, no,
1: uh, probably someone sawing (laughs) at least this time of day. (laughs) Um, yeah, it wouldn't have been good. This is very generous of them to let me use it. So thank you if they do listen, um. But yeah, I mean, if that's why, if I sound a little hollow or something, that's that's what's going on. It won't be permanent. It'll just be until until they finish the construction on my uh, on my patio or whatever they're doing. Balcony. Um, once they're done with that, I'll be back to normal.
0: So, how about this book, Red Alert?
1: Yeah, you know, a throwback novel for us, 1958. Although I guess uh, we, we've definitely covered a few uh, older than that. Not our not our oldest, but but pretty pretty
0: old. I, I felt like I could feel how old it was, kind of also. Some like sure. Cold War era tendencies in the book.
1: Well, this was a this was an extremely topical novel for a certain time, and so it can it struck a chord I think with people and probably Stanley Kubrick, um, who made Doctor Strangelove. Which we should say that this this novel formed the basis for Doctor Strangelove. That's why we're covering it. Um, I think in the long term, it's probably not widely read because some of that topical nature is going to fade, like pretty quickly as soon as you get out of the time frame that it's set. Right. So as soon as the Cold War is over, a novel like this is is just going to see a reduction in the interest. Where you got something like Lord of the Rings, where it seems like people are coming back to it, you know, in a modern day or, or any other number of classic novels that that are more a little bit more timeless.
0: Uh, th- this is just what I was feeling. Was the The writings of someone who was afraid of of some sort of, you know, nuclear attack or some sort of like meltdown and nations fighting and, you know, it's strangely, you know, we covered children of men and it's fairly relevant now with what's going on. And it feels like this is like kind of a harbinger, hopefully not, but it's like it seems like there's some maybe some some parallels to what's going on now in terms of like people who are in power and people who are making decisions.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely was thinking of our, our, some of our command structure right now and you, know, you can't help but do that. Um, and when I say that, I say, uh, in America, um, also, you know, it, it's interesting to see a book where the Russians are sort of the enemy, right? Although there's not, that's not really the enemy here. It's kind of an enemy within actually in this novel. Um, but you know, that's, that's who America is, is essentially at war with. And, and that's where the, this nuclear arms race is, is, is directed. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously nowadays it's more of, it seems like it's more information warfare and, and trying to destabilize things that way, influence elections, so on and so forth. But, um, I, you know, I want to focus on this book without getting too much into that, because otherwise I feel like we're going to get lost. Uh, we're going to lose the focus here a little bit, but we can talk about it as it comes up.
0: We just recently went on the podcast, Watch, Review, Repeat, who are yep. friends, podcast, and, and uh, it was really fun to go on there and talk about Stranger Things 3, and they have, there's a Russian plot line in that show, and it yeah. kind of got me, it, I thought it was like yeah. a, a funny coincidence that we're covering Russian stuff And then with Sh- again.
1: Chernobyl, is something we both have really enjoyed that we watched on HBO, which is, you know, obviously, uh, although it's more Soviet Union, I guess it's Ukraine now, but still you know what I mean like it seems like it seems like that's topical right now and I think for a reason that that has like infiltrated our media in some ways this is accidental because this is an old thing so
0: right I I want to talk about I guess we should talk about it in in spoilers more but this idea of of uh people like unilaterally making decisions that affect millions and and things like that definitely think that that's yeah. that's something that comes up in this book and then again in the movie and I think that it's it's just scary, right? It's really. Yeah. Uh, oh it's- yeah,
1: no this this book is definitely scary, and it, it's not to say that like this kind of shit still couldn't happen. I know that there are a lot. There's been advancements in technology, and 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 the way these systems are run, and you would hope that it's not as like, susceptible to this sort of thing. But um, speaking of the spoiler, non spoiler stuff, I think we should have a pretty short non spoiler section, um, just where we talk about the book a little bit in general, and then we'll get right into spoilers. Um, you can decide if this sounds like something you want to read at that point, but uh, if not, we welcome you to just listen. Um, we'll we'll go over the uh, we'll go over the plot and we'll let you know what happens in it. Um, if you're a fan of Doctor Strangelove and you're just curious about this book, it's a really good way to, I, I think, to get an experience of what it's like um, without having to actually read it.
0: Yeah. So I guess just to get some of my my general thoughts on it, it, it with Doctor Strangelove being one of my favorite satirical movies, it's. Uh, really weird to to see the serious version of this story uh yeah. and in a weird way you can see exactly what kubrick was reading and then he just extrapolated it out to make it funny because it's so close it's so like it teeters the line of absurdity and if you just tip it, it is, a little yeah. bit more it can be yeah. it can be that satirical funny over-the-top movie that we get
1: yeah because it's, it's it's this is a serious novel um however it borders on absurdity like you said a few times and and, um, I think Cooper picked, picked up on that and decided to emphasize that. Um, also notable, there is no Dr. Strangelove character, um, in this, in this book. So, um, that's kind of a big change. <laughs> what would that even look
0: like in this book? It would, it would be yeah, so right? weird. Yeah. I, I mean, I kind of
1: wanted some sort of like scientist character, but we didn't get any of that. Yeah. Uh, but in general, so this is a thriller. Did you find, did you find that you were gripped by it? Did you find it engaging? Um, what was your experience reading
0: it? I, I have to be honest; like it, it, I didn't find it all that engaging. I, it yeah. was, I think, it was an interesting read because I liked uh, Doctor Strangelove, but it, it didn't engage me all that much. Um, I felt myself like wanting to stop, and I did stop a few times and, and put it down and come back to it. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if that's a, because it's of of a certain time or if you know it didn't do its yeah. job as a thriller. But I, I, it was thrilling. It was there were moments where I could see like this is a very tense moment and i kind of got it but what would you think
1: i think it's i think it's more the former this is a product of its time because if if we were currently in the height of the cold war reading this book um you can see how it would be really terrifying uh right if if it was like if you didn't know like if this could be happening right now like these are the systems that are in place these are the bomb these are the bombs these are the planes like this is exactly what's happening right now versus this like look back at a, a point in history where this was the technology and this was the situation which is, yeah. gives us enough distance to where maybe it's not as like scary as
0: it would be which engages that thriller kind of hook and that's the, that's not to mention the where america was at that time you know like as a as a yeah. country coming out of world war ii uh, you know seemingly saving the world and and you know being the heroes that the u.s were in in world war ii and you uh, I, it's it's really interesting to think of where americans were thinking of like their politics and like the government protecting them and if they would protect them and this is like a kind of almost pre-american corruption uh you know there work there was corruption but it was just like it was before the the general public was really tapped into how much corruption was, was there you know what sure. i mean we're talking like pre-nixon pre a lot of that stuff
1: yeah yeah you're right um and this is also a time in which the Soviet Union was at the height of its power, whereas we, you know, obviously it has changed over time. Chernobyl happened, uh, the you know Soviet Union destabilized and eventually fell, and, and and so this this was when it was neck and neck. The space race wasn't was happening, right? And, and so and all, all of that is, you know,
0: yeah. And all of that to say, like that's just how much more terrifying it would be to read the book in the context of, of the time period it came out for sure, right? But, but I do agree with you, there, it, it, because it's not that time
1: it, and, and I was trying to put myself in that mindset as much as possible, um, I, I was struggling a little bit. Um, it also didn't help. I read the audiobook, or I'm sorry, the ebook version. Um, and there was quite a few uh, weird typos and I don't know, transition errors or something. Um, it was I don't, in my opinion, not a great job uh, of uh, this audiobook. I, I keep wanting to call it audio. this <laughs> ebook. Um, and that's unfortunate because I assumed this wasn't present in the original novel, but maybe it was, I don't know. Did you, did you catch that? Did that throw you off at any, or did you not even notice it?
0: I I saw a couple, yeah. uh, And I, I just had to assume that there was some sort of, yeah, somebody, whoever was typing the stuff up or, you know, moving it over from text or whatever, whatever program they were using made an error and and people, it's not, it's not a big enough book to where people are like up in arms if there's a typo in it.
1: Right. Which is kind of unfortunate, though, because it's like it just takes you out of it whenever you whenever like some important line is garbled in some way because yeah. something got le- left out or something. And there's a little bit of that. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, uh, the characters are I mean, in, 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 a, in thriller fashion, the characters are fairly flat, like we don't spend a lot of time developing them. Um, it's more just like in the moment. Now, that's not to say it's poorly written. I think it does a good job. I think there are moments that that I found particularly engaging. Um, and I can see a lot of the, the blueprint for the film that got made, which is obviously a, you know, a classic. I don't know. I, I guess if, if you're, if you're interested, if you're a huge fan of Dr. Strangelove and you're curious about this book, then I do recommend reading it. Um, but beyond that, I don't think this is a book that people should feel like they're missing out if they didn't read it. Um, I think it's probably fine to, to skip out on and maybe just listen to this episode.
0: <laughs> yeah, but definitely watch the movie because I, I just recommend it. highly. Absolutely. So uh, I wanted to mention the fact, speaking of mega fans of, of Dr. Strangelove, this podcast, this project here was actually paid for by a patron that we have in our jukebox category, which is really exciting. This is Stephen E. Stephen E. Yeah, this is the second one that he's been able to commission. And it's yep. just so cool. You know, like we, you know, we probably would have done this eventually. But the, the idea that he was, he wanted us to do it to the point that he was willing to to pay for it is really awesome. Yeah.
1: And we didn't have any plans to do it anytime soon. Oh, I no. mean, it definitely yeah. moved up. Like we probably wouldn't have done it this year. So he definitely affected it. Um, we're doing it now because he has earned. You know, he earned the number of tokens to unlock it, and unlocked it. Um, and speaking of those tokens, we are actually doing a special offer right now for any patron. Um, if you're a patron on August 11th, um, which is going to be to in sort of in celebration of our 100th episode. Um, and if you're a patron, if you're an existing patron or your new patron doesn't matter as long as you're a patron on that date, you're going to get a token and you can use them to commission a, pro- uh, a project just like this um, or, you know, put them towards put them towards a project to, to indicate that you want us to cover it and then we'll, we'll definitely move it up the list. So um, if you've ever thought about supporting this podcast and
0: financially, which would be a great help to us if you do um, now's the best time to sign up for our 100th episode. Celebration, we're also doing a really cool thing where we're reaching out to our listeners and we're asking our listeners to record an audio file on your phone using like your voice memo app or whatever you have on, on your phone that can that'll allow you to record an audio file Actually, why don't you you know the three questions better than I do, right? So the three questions are: Let's <laughs> see if I can remember them off the top of my head. What's an adaptation adaptation that you love?
1: Yeah. What's what's your what's your favorite adaptation um, or adaptation you love um, that what have you? You could choose that if you want to tell us that. You can also share with us an adaptation that is coming out um, that hasn't come out yet that you're excited about and why, and then you can also. Share with us a book that you are a fan of that you think would make for a great adaptation. Um, any of those three prompts, whatever you, whatever interests you most, go ahead and record that. Just try and keep the clip under 60 seconds. It doesn't have to be 60 seconds, but um, we're looking to put a, a bunch of them in the episode itself and react to them and talk about them. So we welcome you to write in, and, or sorry, to send that in uh, to inktofilm at gmail.com. And just make sure to say your first name and where
0: you're from in the clip as well. So we're really looking yeah. forward to reacting to those and, and talking about them. Um, we're kind of we're kind of trying to to check them, make sure they're good without listening to them, so we can freshly react to them. At least one of us will so have not heard it. <laughs> right. So it'll be cool. Yeah. It'll be cool to to get those live reactions basically on our part when we record our episode.
1: Absolutely. And uh, yeah, so we're, we're excited about the 100th episode. We hope you'll join us for that. It's going to be coming here in, I guess, less than a month. It's coming soon. But let's get back to Red Alert. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about Peter George. Now, you might notice this, if you look this book up online, you'll see Peter Bryant, um, sometimes is the author listed. And that's because Peter George used a pseudonym or a nom de plume to write this novel. And the reason he did that is because he was an active uh, service member of the RAF in uh, England at the time of writing this novel, and so he uh, first off couldn't write it about Britain; he had to write it about the U.S. because of certain agreements that he was under for being an active service member. And then he also chose to do a, 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 a pseudonym to, to you know, I guess, to disguise his identity a little bit. Um, wow! So he he uh, and he fought in World War II um, as a, as a pilot. And, and on different planes. Um, so a lot of this stuff from, from, the, uh, from the planes perspective, especially, I believe, is, is very authentic to
0: an experience that, that he might have had. So um, very cool in that, in that regard. That's, that's really interesting. I did not realize that. So you would think he potentially wanted to write it from the perspective of, of England. Maybe.
1: Yeah. And, and th- I, that's at least the theory is that, it, that he couldn't because of, because of certain agreements he had. Yeah. Interesting. Um, So he was actually a Welsh author who uh, was born in 1924. Um, He would die eight years after this novel's publication in 1966 um, due to a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Whoa. I don't want to go down conspiracy rabbit holes, but when I was Googling it, there was at least a couple of people out there who were openly suggesting that maybe he was taken out. Um, and that it wasn't actually a suicide. I don't see. I didn't see any evidence. It just seemed like more like people were saying like, "Oh, because all of his novels seem to be about the threat of nuclear war and like how terrible the nuclear threat is." And it seems to be something that was like constantly on his mind. And people were like, "Why are you so worried about the you know humanity's you know ability to survive if if you're going to kill yourself?" That kind of thing, right? Um, but that's not proof of anything. <laughs> that's just that's just speculation, and you have no idea what his mental state was like. So, seemingly committed suicide, from all accounts. It, it from what I have seen, he was preoccupied with with the idea of how uh, how can we go forward with this threat, and and it 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 over overwhelmed him. I, I don't, do you know when when um, Doctor Strangelove actually came out? I, I yeah, it,
0: it was, was sixty four. So that's he was able to see it released
1: yes so two years later um it's pretty wild right um he was only 41 years old is what i read wow young guy um he had written a bunch of novels actually i think i see about eight of them here um he had another one also that was in the works but he never finished when he
0: died which is another thing people took as like proof like why would he not finish the book or whatever i don't know i mean it is it is interesting to think of a potential conspiracy theory where he knew something that he was trying to convey through his books or something or, or at least warn people and make them aware right. which
1: is why i think people are some people are speculating that but right. i don't know there's no evidence for it so we got to keep that in mind i don't know <laughs> you know what yeah. i mean yeah. um, so oh, and the other thing is that like it's supposedly difficult to own a weapon like in britain at the time so like how did he get the gun? I don't know. I don't know the rules in Britain and like how you can go about doing it, but it seems like it seems like if you're a serviceman, you probably can get access to a a weapon. I would assume.
0: It sounds like you're sold, dude. It sounds like you're in on the conspiracy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I, I honestly debated whether or not I wanted to even mention it, um, just because it does seem pretty out there. But I don't know. It potentially could be interesting, and and you know that's one of the few things we could talk about with this. So so one of the other things. Um, Initially, he was not a fan of Kubrick's concept. of of recasting this as a satire, but uh, eventually um, agreed to it. And it seems like he is credited as kind of co-writing the screenplay, although how much actual input he had, I think is unclear. Um, And then after after the fact, he actually wrote a novelization of Dr. Strangelove, where it was more in keeping with the tone of the film, and he dedicated that book to Stanley Kubrick.
0: I had heard that he made a novelization, um, but I, I didn't know that he like dedicated it to Kubrick. That's cool. Yeah, it must be really it must be really weird for Kubrick to approach you and like say I want to I want to film this. And you know I think at this point having done like. Past to glory and and he's kind of already made a name for himself yeah, So but he wasn't he the would, kubrick that that like, I, I when did 2001 space odyssey come
1: out after after strange love after this so yeah. yeah this was before the shining this was before uh clockwork orange the vietnam war movie he did oh uh no full metal jacket full metal jacket thank you that's what yeah it was. so i think this is before all of that um but right. yeah I, I, it seems like he had maybe done a few things so another interesting tidbit about this book Is that around the time it came, or shortly after it got purchased by Kubrick to be developed, um, another novel by the name Failsafe was written uh, around the same time and was purchased by another filmmaker um, who's, and they started developing another film that seemed to have a similar plot. And it was also about, um, you know, sort of the nuclear arms race. Um, The. Uh, there was already a couple big actors signed on, and so Kubrick and 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 Peter George were were a little bit worried about what this is going to do to the film's success because both were both were slated to come out around the same time, um, but they ended up suing uh, Failsafe because uh, apparently it was very similar for copyright infringement, and uh, it seems to have been significant enough that they actually settled it out of court. Um, so it wasn't just like tossed out or something. Like they actually found reached a settlement out of court about it. Um, I'm assuming paying Peter George. This delayed the, the film to where it ended up coming out after Dr. Strangelove. And and so their, their strategy seemed to work.
0: <laughs> so I, I also heard something about he potentially wanted to make the, he didn't uh, have the satirical angle until he heard there was a similar movie coming out. And then he pivoted to make it satirical. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you've read or if that's if there's factual or not, I'll have to look more into that for the movie episode.
1: I don't know. I did I did read that um, part of the lawsuit was over the character of Doctor Strangelove, because apparently there's a very similar character in Failsafe. However, there is no character like that in Peter George's novel. Yeah,
0: so So that's sort of interesting like how did
1: they argue yeah was maybe maybe they were saying they they copy They uh, stole from the screenplay somehow or something got a hold of it. I don't know
0: So I went ahead and looked up failsafe. I'm not I wasn't familiar with with the movie, but I am familiar with the director It's Cindy Lumet and yes, who is known for 12 Angry Men and Network, which just those are two like completely classic films that everyone would tell you are fantastic films so it's not like it was some random director it was like a well-known fantastic director who was who was also trying to get a movie made uh at the same time as Kubrick so another thing about fail safe is that the cast is like really well really well known it's like Henry Fonda Walter Matthau it's like there's some people in this so it wasn't like it was a it was like a full on film and, and it had stars attached to it and everything. And, and that's why I had heard that that Kubrick was a little worried that like financially his movie would would suffer and, and failsafe was slated to come out first, like you said, right? Yes. And then and that was pushed to after. Sounds like they had some sort of grounds. And yeah. the rest was history. <laughs>
1: yeah. And you don't think they'd settle out of court unless it just became like maybe they just wanted to expedite the process and it was better to do that. Who knows? Um, I couldn't find any information further than that, though, from from what I saw.
0: Really interesting stuff. Yeah, I think we'll talk a little more about maybe some of that stuff on on the movie episode. Just the Kubrick side of it. Speaking of the movie, I've only seen the
1: movie once, and it was probably about 10 years ago. Um, I don't feel like I remember it that well, other than a few scenes. A few like iconic exchanges, um, so I'm I'm very excited to watch this movie again, uh, especially knowing all I know more, more about Kubrick from covering The Shining with you in a previous episode and stuff like that. So I'm into it. I'm, I'm excited for next week. But let's let's buckle in and, and talk about Red Alert, the novel. So if you're ready, I think I want to get into the plot, which will include some spoilers. So if you're sold on the book, stop now. Go read it. It's a pretty quick read. Uh, you know, I read it in a couple days. Um, not too bad. But um, otherwise just stick around. Okay, so in a paranoid delusion, moribund U.S. Air Force General Quinton unilaterally launches an airborne preventative nuclear attack upon the Soviet Union from his command at the Sonora, Texas Strategic Air Command, SAC, bomber base by ordering the 843rd Bomb Wing to attack using war plan, Wing Attack Plan R, which authorizes a lower echelon SAC commander to retaliate after an enemy first strike has decapitated the U.S. government. He attacks with the entire B-52 bomber wing of new aircraft, each armed with two nuclear weapons and protected with the electronic countermeasures to prevent the Soviets from shooting them down. Okay, so that is the premise of the novel. That's what kicks everything off. So let's talk about this a little bit here.
0: So yeah, this is what I was talking about before. This the, uh, this idea that somebody, you know, with a grudge or somebody who who thinks they're future trying to future-proof some sort of attack or, or put a, you know, preemptive strike, um, could, could, I don't know, make a, make a decision like this. And, and I'm assuming, like you said, there's, there's different things in place to prevent this from happening, but you know, somebody has their finger on the button and if they're having a bad day or they, you know, get something in their head, that might be right. Then, uh, (laughs) then I, I just, it's really, really terrifying. It's like. You know, we live this this life where there you know there's horrors that happen every day, but it's just crazy that a, one push of the button and, and everything's yeah. gone.
1: And this threat is still there, and in fact, it's it's you know the bombs are e- even more dangerous. Um, they talk a little bit in this about how these bombs are are order of magnitude larger than the ones that were dropped on Hiroshima and um, Nagasaki during World War II. This is the time in which these bombs were new, still being developed. Um, there was no reduction of this sort of stuff. And we had, you know, within, within 20 years, you had seen a bomb be dropped by your country. So it's like, it was very real that this could happen. I feel like nowadays
0: there's a bit more complacency because it hasn't happened in so long to where it seems like it's exactly. not going to, right? Yeah. It, there's this, I'm not sure where it can, comes from, but it, there's this idea that like, you know, the generation that goes to war, the the following generation will, will maybe learn from that and see Oh shit! We shouldn't go go to war. It's horrific. Look at all these all this aftermath and everything like that. But enough time passes; those young kids come along, two or three generations later. They don't they don't know what the horrors were like when the war was going on, and so they're like you said they're the lesson might have been lost. The lessons lost, and then and then it's yeah. ready to continue itself, and the cycle the cycle might might come back around, and it's really scary to think about like like you're saying this was 20 years out from a bomb being dropped, and now we're yeah you know 50, 60, what are, what yeah. are we 70 years? 70 well yeah, yeah from
1: one being dropped in a war yeah
0: in a war yeah and so i mean it's just really scary to think of where people are right now and like that's why i get i i just like if i hear people talking about like why we should be in wars and why wars are, are good it just scares me because it's like yeah. i feel like until you know and like I, it's not that i know i just i just try to understand and empathize i guess and we
1: know now that tensions with Ru- russia have reignited right and and you know if if their, you know, favorite president doesn't get reelected, how are things going to change between the US, you know what I mean, and them? And and are they going to continue to try and meddle with elections? Are they going to continue to try and affect things? And at what point do does, you know, that turn into actual aggression? I don't know. Yeah, if you, if unless you call that actual aggression, which some people could and should. Um, but you know what I mean? I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing. I'm not, it's just like, it's scary, right? Because it's like are we headed for another cold war of some kind? Are we in the middle of one maybe? Maybe you could argue we are. Yeah. Um but let's 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 dial in on Quentin here because he is a kind of an interesting character in his reasoning. He has this concept of America's official position is to only strike in retaliation to a Soviet Union nuclear attack. So If they were to hit us, we would hit them back. And it's sort of this mutual assured destruction thing that has everybody at a standstill. And he believes that this is a mistake and that the only way to win this inevitable war is to take the first strike. And he thinks right now is the time. I forget the exact reasons, but it seems like the Soviet Union was like, was a little bit down, like they were They were repairing certain things and installing some new systems. And so not all of their stuff was fully operational. So he identified that, like, this is the time to do it. And this plan that he uses is created so that if the Soviet Union destroyed DC and destroyed much of the leadership, that these bombers would still carry out the mission um, w- without having to take any sort of outside um, input. And because of that, um, since he's been able to manipulate it, this plan into action, the, the crew of, of this, of this, you know, the main bomber that we follow, um, they believe that this has happened and that the U S has been struck with, with nuclear weapons and that they are the sort of the vengeance of America. And, and they take their, and that's the tragedy of the book It's how, how deadly serious they take this, right?
0: Well, they yeah, they're thinking about their families. They're thinking about everybody who's potentially gone and wiped out and what they they like you said, they're the vengeance and the revenge. Yeah. And it's well set up because in the very beginning they're kinda coming back from a mission. They're gonna get to come stateside and, and be back home, but well, they're approaching the X point, which is like the point in which they turn back
1: and they're looking right. ahead. They're like, as soon as we get past this X point, we get to turn back and we're looking ahead to what af- after we get that we'll relax because we know that nothing's going to happen. Like this right. is the big moment on their flight and, and they're
0: approaching it. Right. And and the part that I love about this is is somebody's talking, thinking about how massive you were talking about the bombs were that were dropped yeah. on like Nagasaki Hiroshima. but the ones that they have, the ones that are riding in the cargo bay and like yeah. that ominous feeling of, of just like knowing how much power is underneath you or near yeah. you. I
1: don't remember the exact numbers, but it's, it's megatons versus kilotons, which it's like right. megabytes versus, you know, kilobytes. So you know that those are, that's a big difference in power. Um, oh yeah. So yeah, the two bombs they have are enormous.
0: But just, just think about being nearby that.
1: Yeah. Or like you can drop it on a base that's like out near enough to a city that the entire city is just gone. Yeah, You know, it, it's, it's just wild to think about the size of that.
0: So Quentin, you know, I think we've seen that kind of character a lot in in films and, and books. But this, I think the the most compelling villains are the ones that clearly think they're right. And all villains, I think, do think they're right. And that's the thing is, like, there are people who could be in these positions of power who feel that they're doing the right thing so strongly that they're not willing to listen to anyone else, that they're willing to take things into their own hands and and I felt that that was the the really scary part was just that Quentin is someone who is to be he's high up up enough to where he can he can concoct this little plan here and he's he's basically just making it look like the U.S. has been attacked that nobody else can make the call but him so he makes the call to to retaliate.
1: I think that's a good point. Like you said, this guy thinks he is the hero of the story, and I, I was actually kind of surprised at how many other people and maybe maybe I shouldn't be, but how many people up the chain of command kind of were like, yeah, he's, he actually is probably doing the right thing here. I kind of agree with it, um, even, though, even though I'm not going to say that, right? A lot of these generals seem you You're saying to be, like
0: the Pentagon people?
1: Yeah, a lot of the people yeah. later that we get, like the generals were like, yeah, this is, it's rash, but it's actually probably a good decision. So the only option we have is to go forward with it. And I, I think Peter George is trying to, trying to make a point about, about that sort of bloodthirsty, like there is a, there's a mindset that is prevalent— right that 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 is
0: dangerous and i think he was highlighting that and even if it's just a survival you know these guys are like war generals so even if it's just a survival basis they're thinking oh yeah this attack is on its way so i don't have to make that decision anymore but if we send in more we can actually take out the threat and potentially win and so it's like the easiest it's the path of least resistance so why not just go with it and yeah it is it's it's yeah like you said it's just scary that everybody that mob mentality like everybody's ready to go, ready to yeah. guarantee their own safety at the cost of millions well, and that's why like you know obviously you know I have huge respect for our armed forces and
1: the the danger that you know soldiers put themselves in and the decisions people have to make the life and death things um, you know i'm a, I, I absolutely am, am um, in awe of that stuff and have huge respect um, however I, I think it is important to have a opposing side in within our country to to make sure that because because the war machine is made to be a war machine right like it's made to destroy it's made to win um and once it's deployed it that's what it does and that's sort of what quentin is counting on that he can deploy the u.s war machine and then it will it will win because he'll start it in a into a something that is irreversible but um there has to be cooler heads out there right especially when you're talking about thermonuclear weapons that can wipe out the world and that's what we're dealing with here and 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 the the potential for that so um i don't know i thought it was it was well handled um i don't know enough about these command structures to you know to say whether or not it's completely accurate um but but i was definitely along for the ride and uh, it's scary stuff, and and like I said, I can only imagine how scary it would have been in the height of the actual Cold War, right?
0: Definitely, and scary for these for these guys who are you like you said like risking their lives on this on this yeah. on this plane that has this bomb, and and they're they're the last line of defense now. They have to they have to like protect or avenge at this point, and right? And and
1: it's tragic, right?
0: Yeah, the decisions that are made by by people who aren't there that affect yep. these people that will get them killed that will it's it's yeah. it's tragic like you said
1: yeah they think they're, they're they're these heroes and actually everyone including their own country is trying to stop them from doing the thing they're doing yet they're they're out there like heroically fighting for for what they believe in
0: and that's the thing yeah. like if if they were doing the thing that they were told to do they are heroes you know yeah they they're they're yeah. they're, they're acting in in morally they're they're doing what's heroic and they're sacrificing themselves for the greater good yeah. the problem and is all the of- people up above are making decisions that, that they're having to, ta- to carry out.
1: Right, and, and in this, in this um, plot description here, it says the moribund U.S. Air Force General, oh, it says General Harris, there's a General, uh, Quentin, <laughs> and, and that reminds me that I think early on we learned that he is terminally ill, so that's another reason why he's willing to go through with this, right? Like He's in a position where he's like, well, they don't even know yet, but I, I'm not long for this world, so I'm going to take my last thing here and go for it and anytime you have this kind of power that has that resides in one person and he's identified that he has the ability to do that like that's inherently dangerous and and should not exist so i'm hopeful that these sort of stories like got into our government enough for them to look at their systems and make sure that not just one rogue general could just decide to to start world war three
0: I hope so, man. I, I really I hope, hope so. so. <laughs> I, yeah. I just like sometimes. Sometimes I hear how some things are going, and and I don't know how how secure everything necessarily is. But maybe we're we're meant to think that yeah. I don't know. On any given day, we're meant to think that it is secure or not secure based on. Yeah who's telling it and all that other stuff. So, and I do think the, um,
1: the crew of the Alabama angel and the, all of the like interpersonal relationships and the way they regarded their mission. And a lot of the stuff just describing the plane and, 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 and its flight. And that was all really exciting, well-written and I think authentic. And it didn't shock me to learn that, that the author has this sort of history behind him because I thought that was some of the best stuff. And I actually don't remember how much stuff we get in the movie, on like on the bomber itself. Um so I'll be curious to track that because I felt like that was some of the best stuff in this book.
0: Although yeah, I, I liked
1: you're... a lot of the stuff in the war room too, but but I, I also particularly like the Alabama Angel stuff.
0: Yeah, and that was where we got more human stuff. You know, it's not just generals yeah. carrying out orders and things like that. We get people with actual thoughts and thinking of family and all that. Are you ready for the next for the next bit of plot? Yeah, but really quickly the Go ahead. You were mentioning uh you don't remember how much is in the adaptation. Um mm-hmm. I think that's partially maybe where uh, Peter George was pushing back against Kubrick's initial uh, satirical viewpoint on this story because it was something that he had gone through. You know what I mean? He'd been in these horror right. scenarios and like seeing it turned into a joke. I can I can see where someone might feel like if it's not handled perfectly, it could be yeah. just like really offensive.
1: Yeah, and my understanding is that Kubrick felt ultimately that the satire was going to get through to people more than showing it. As a you know, a fully serious film, and right. I think that that's a tough concept to get your head around, especially if you've written this book and you're very serious about it. um But it sounds like he came around once he saw the final product, so that's that's cool to cool to hear to me.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of like like Charlie Chaplin's the the Dictator, the Great Dictator. It's like that kind of it's a basically he's, he's been sending up Hitler, he's making fun of Hitler, and it was fairly. I mean, I think it was before the real uh, rise of of. Nazism and the spreading of it, it you know, it had been affecting people, but it wasn't like World War Two wasn't fully in effect yet. I don't think so. So just the idea that like you're he's Charlie Chaplin took it upon himself to to make a film because of the, the eradication of Jews that was going on. He took he made a film making fun of the the scariest man in the world, Hitler, and and instead of doing it in like a serious way and a dramatic way that would like affect people and make them cry and all this stuff he made them like cry with laughter and realize the absurdity in it and like how funny it was and how ridiculous it is that like this could be happening and then also brought joy to people in a time that was that was tough which you yeah. could say maybe Kubrick was doing as well.
1: Yeah, that's I I didn't think of that. I haven't seen that that movie but uh, that's an interesting. We we should revisit that once we get to the film for sure. Um, let me read a little bit more plot here. So when the U.S. president and cabinet become aware that the attack is underway, they assist the Soviet defense interception of the USAF bombers to little effect because the Soviets destroy only two bombers and damage one, the Alabama Angel, which remains airborne and en route to its target. So this opens up the the whole war room scenario and the president and all these generals. Um, What was your take on these characters? What was your take on the president and how he functioned in the story? He was kind of the hero in a way of the story, right?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, the big, the big thing that we learn, obviously, is that the president is aware of the Russian, like super weapon, super whatever you would call it, that that's ready to destroy the world, which is something I wanted yeah. to talk world about. World killing for. bombs, yeah, right, and like that's also terrifying. Like I, I'm sure that there's, you know, maybe not one specific thing, but I'm sure there are like things in order to. that like countries potentially have that could just wipe out the earth they could say like we want the earth to be gone and then just wipe it out
1: i yeah i don't know if this is true so the theory is that the uh or what's proposed in the book is that the russians have a bunch of these bombs in mountains in russia with no plans to actually launch them but they're 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 in a position to where if they detonate them it's going to create enough fallout, enough poison, enough radiation, enough of a gas a dust cloud, what have you, that it will destroy the planet ultimately. And if they know they're going out that they're going to just detonate them, right? Am, yeah. am I misremembering
0: that? No, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it is, but th- I don't think that actually actually does exist or did exist. I I'm, I'm not sure. Um yeah. but the idea that it could is is Absolutely okay. like just the idea that your whole country is decimated and then you're just like or like everyone's at war really and then just the The idea of being like let's just wipe off all life off the face of the earth
1: And that's kind of the scary stuff that um also there was all this like this really dark Math being done like of like well if you destroy this city then we'll destroy this city and like It just just the way they were equating things and like well obviously it's got to be fair so that's the only fair way to do it. And it's like, none of this is fair. None of this is right. None of this should be happening. And 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 sometimes I, I can see Kubrick's perspective on this because sometimes you just want to just throttle these people and go, what are you talking about right now? Like, it's insanity.
0: Okay, I can't even imagine being in a position like that. I can't even like, begin to comprehend... What kind of mindset mentality you would need to be in to to talk about people in this way? And I'm sure presidents and and other officials have to have to, but it's just like it's it's not something I want <laughs> to have to deal yeah. with. That's, I mean, how do you even have a normal life? We should you talk about that particular scene at the
1: end there because I. I, I I don't know if I believe that it would go down that way. So we can talk about that more as we when we get there. But yeah, I mean, it's it's something to live with. That I mean, they, people make these kinds of decisions in a way all the time, and and it's it's something people have to live with. And I always remember that um, quote. I can't remember who it's attributed to. It might even be like Stalin or somebody. But it's it's like the the death of a person is a tragedy. The death of a million people is a statistic, right? And. Uh, absolutely, you see that at play all the time. And, and I think you see it here where it's very easy for them to abstractly talk about a city or a million people. Um, but then, you, you know, like if you're standing in front of a person and that person gets killed, like it's this, you know, it's a tragedy.
0: So I don't know. It's just, it's the distance, right? Yeah. But I mean, that's the danger, definitely. The, the idea that that you forget the humanity in it and you're just that's this, you know, that's the main thing is just the, everyone's a person. And and not to mention the ecological
1: and, you know, ramifications and, and you know, all that stuff that they don't even touch on in this book, um, which rightfully so. I don't believe these characters would be thinking about it. So the president, um, he's, he's described as being this like, to me, he reminds me of what I think the ideal president is in a lot of people's mind. And like he behaves in the way that is like how we hope our presidents will behave um, in times of war and um he's he's like heroic he's 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 firm yet he he knows when to like he knows when to negotiate he knows when to give ground but then he also has like a breaking point where he won't go past and he and, and he commands respect and all of the above right and um i just couldn't help but but think about how uh complete opposite is what we have right now and and imagine uh our president our current president in the scenario of just throwing tantrums and
0: and probably pushing every yeah. button
1: in sight. Um it's scary stuff.
0: I went to Disney World and uh this is kind of off off topic, but I went to Disney World and the Hall of Presidents uh has Donald Trump in it. And uh-huh. it was it was really weird and eerie because he spoke in the in this recording that they have, which I don't even think was him, I think it was a probably a voice actor. It's the most eloquent I've ever heard him talk, it's the most level headed I've ever heard him talk. And it was, uh-huh. and it, that, that kind of was making me think of just like, man, like if, if there is a, if there is some sort of, you know, horrific thing that happens or, or a hard decision, you know, I'm sure he's made hard decisions, but if there's something that like he has to decide whether we go to war or not. Like, I just can't even under see this person acting reaction, uh, rationally. I don't know. It scares the hell out of me, man. Cause we're talking about people who have their fingers on the button, just like this story.
1: Yeah, yeah man. And, uh, you want it, to, this, is, this guy that in this book is what you want. Um, and, and I do not believe that's what we have, but let's, get, let's move back into the book here. Um, so the president is also like kind of the only politician in a room full of, of generals. And so I think that also puts him in an interesting spot where he is sort of more, but it, really the only reason he's not all for war is because of this, he knows about this secret plan the Russians have to destroy the world if they get attacked. And and that's what he reveals to them. He says, like, we're not going to win this war by doing this. It's, we're, it's just going to kill the world. And I don't know, it's wild. Like, the idea of these guys standing around talking about the destruction of the entire planet in such, like, calm ways... I think has to have lent itself to Stanley Kubrick's version of this movie, right? Cause it's, it's right. ludicrous in some ways. Like people, these, this should be, I don't know. I don't know, man. It's wild. That's
0: what I'm talking about. Like you can't, you can't be a normal human being. You're not a person. You're, you're like some sort of like weird robot that's making <laughs> decisions based on like statistics and, and like, what's, you know, the, I don't know what's going to create yeah. the most, most destruction or, or, The least destruction and it's it's crazy because the the, like you know kubrick does hit on it a little bit it's like how can people be like this how can they be so uh removed yeah
1: and and i think you would argue that like i mean you know if you're struggling with this kind of stuff in the situation like that's the fallback is to just rationalize everything and to to go down and say well let's just look at numbers and this number is bigger than this number so we got to go with the smaller number of, of casualties and so forth and like that's how people have to behave but if you are able to step back a, a level further than that and, and and look at what's happening, it's just ludicrous. And then it's so unfair and just, like, bizarre to have it all set off by this Quentin guy. Um, he also around this time has, he, he has like commanded his base to fire on anyone who approaches. And even if they're wearing U S uh, you know, uniforms that, that, that assume that they're the enemy and he's given all these orders and sure enough, they try and raid the fortress and
0: they're so firing the, upon them. So it's, this is it's the wild. part where it starts to feel like a little iffy to me because the, this idea that, a chain of command the war machine things are going on soldiers listen to generals but if he if you're just being told to fire on us soldiers you might want to think about what the general is telling you to do
1: well apparently that's built into this plan is that they might that they might come wearing our uniforms to try and infiltrate i don't know man maybe the paranoia was such at the time that people would buy this um there's also a certain extent of like people just doing what their orders are um and if they tell you to do this that you're just going to do it cuz those are your orders Um, Which we know is you know historically is is some scary shit, but it it does happen
0: This also brings into question Quentin though because it's like he thinks he's doing the right thing and he is by by the United States And he just feels that like these soldiers who are being sacrificed are like a just for the greater good sacrifice Yeah for the greater good and it's just crazy to think that he thinks that like killing American soldiers to ensure that a bomb goes off And it just doesn't seem like the heroic way to do it. It seems like a cowardly way to do it
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I think he's a reprehensible character and and his own delusion is, is, is such that it's interesting though. Cause we see like, he has like a, a second in command or a, a, somebody under him is, um other character. I think his name's Howard who is there. And we get a lot of this from Howard's perspective. And although there, it this, this book does a lot of head hopping. So we get like everyone's perspective, but um, Howard is sort of buying into this madness for a minute. And then it's when he sees the base firing on, American soldiers that he kind of snaps out of it and realizes just how just how ludicrous this is. Right. So let me read the next little bit of plot summary here. The U.S. government reestablishes the SAC airbase chain of command. But the general who launched the attack, the only man knowing the recall code, kills
0: himself before capture and interrogation. So, Quentin, this is him again. He's a coward. He takes the coward's way out. They're under attack. They lose. And then he kills himself. He's not long for the world. He's he's gonna die soon, and so like his his duty is done. And once he see he hears that like the the plane is out of reach of of being basically brought back, he thinks it's far enough away to where they won't be able to recall it. Uh, he kills himself, and it's just crazy because it's like that that's like again, if if he felt that this was so right, why would he kill himself? He knew deep down that it was
1: wrong, and he just didn't want to have to face. Like you said, it's cowardly because it's like he didn't want to have to face. People telling him how wrong he is and ultimately he decides I, and maybe he was worried that he would he would crack right and that he'd give up the code so he decided to make that not happen um that maybe they'd torture him or something and and so i can kind of see the move but it doesn't mean that it's not cowardly yeah it's 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 a dark moment in the in the in the in the book especially considering what happened with with the author so it feels like it's powerless and this book does a good job of like making you feel power powerless right like it keeps putting these these characters in positions where there's nothing they can do like um they can't reach the bombers they don't have the code to recall them this guy who only guy who knew
0: it is now dead like it really makes me appreciate the film i just like this is so bleak and it's so like it it just you want to laugh at it because it's so ridiculous it's so yeah this idea that like someone like this could could Make all of this happen and and basically cause like a new nu- incoming nuclear hol- holocaust and I just can't wait to get to the movie. <laughs> it's, it's just <laughs> I don't know. It's just better. It's just better. It's that that relief that hu- that humor that valve relief I feel feel like we need in the story. So Quentin's executive o- officer correctly deduces the recall code
1: for the bombers from among the general's desk pad doodles. The code is received by the surviving bomber aircraft, and they surviving bomber aircraft, and they are successfully recalled minutes before bombing their targets in the Soviet Union. Save for the Alabama Angel, whose earlier damaged radio prevents its recalling, its and it progresses to its target. So this is a kind of cool uh, storytelling thing here that I like. And that's uh, all is lost. Oh no, wait, no, all is not lost. we we're, we're, we're gonna everything's gonna be okay. Oh wait, no, all is still lost. And that's where um, everybody believes that this has been averted. The Russian ambassador and the president are sort of like celebrating the fact that this was averted at the last possible minute because they got this code from the doodles, which, you know, I I can buy that maybe this guy would do that. He would doodle it and not think anyone would be able to figure it out. Um, But luckily enough, he does it and they're able to recall. But this one plane that has been damaged has been hit. Um, doesn't get the recall code and is like heroically, quote unquote, soldiering on and is nearing the final thing. And they have to go through some crazy shit to get through the flak, to get close to this base. And the way it's described is really, really compelling. They're they're flying super low, they're taking hits, people are dying, like crew members are dying left and right. Um, Brown, the commander uh, or the pilot. Um, has taken a, a mortal wound and is literally like flying through the pain, knowing that he's going to die soon, and 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 trying to just like complete his mission. And um, at the same time that all this is happening, we know that you know they're trying to shoot him down, and like um, they're not—they're actually the the one thing that is a problem now. And if they would just stop, everything would
0: be okay. But they don't know that. And because we cared about the characters, because they were set up, and we, we kind of understood the humanity of, the, of the, the soldiers on the, quote unquote, on the ground, but the ones who were in the, in the plane, um, yeah. the ones who were up there that were having to do it, we want to see them succeed because they're being so heroic, and they're doing everything right by their country, and yet yeah. they need to be shot down, otherwise yeah. the, the, the world could end. So it's just, it's really interesting storytelling technique there. And uh, sure enough, they're not able to actually stop them.
1: So in a last effort to avert a Soviet-American nuclear war, the U.S. president offers Soviet premier the compensa- uh, compensatory right to destroy Atlantic City, New Jersey. At the final moment, the Alabama angel fails to destroy its target and nuclear cast- catastrophe is diverted. Uh, averted. That's not really true, actually. That's <laughs> kind of an oversimplification. So what actually happens in the book is they—they, um, they, I guess they miss their target by a little bit. Um, and they crash and, um, the bomb is damaged on the, cr- in the crash, in a, such a way that the, the larger, I don't really know how the bomb works. I can't describe it. I'm not a scientist, but there's like a larger portion to the bomb that is the main explosion. And that part of it separates from the interior of the bomb, which is a smaller explosion that is still supposedly about the size of a, of a, the Hiroshima bomb or maybe even bigger. And that is the bomb that goes off. Um, they end up dropping, which kills everyone on the on the plane who is but they all died during the crash anyway, I believe. And um, the bomb goes off and uh, wipes them out. But come to find out it, they were enough off target to where it didn't destroy the base and it didn't destroy the city. Instead, it was in a, you know, quote unquote, uninhabited zone
0: in Russia. Right. So it, the bomb never dropped as we were led to believe though. We we thought that the bomb dropped. But then we like kind of cut away and then we get the the crash and we think no it oh. dropped
1: but i think it dropped like something about the way it dropped was wrong
0: like something about like the fin didn't raise for some reason or i thought it was so. like still on board like i thought it was still on board the plane as it crashed and that's what that's what prevented it from from uh
1: yeah i i, I think it's unclear cuz i think i think they they say that that's what happened but i think they actually did drop it um but i think something like something in it's like on board like um computer stuff got screwed up or something and it just didn't do the thing it was supposed to do i don't know the exact thing but it caused it to hit the ground before it was supposed to and it was supposed to detonate in midair actually and they were too low and it so it hit the ground
0: and that damaged it in a way i think so basically like like disaster averted for the most part it still went off it's still going to affect some stuff but it's much much uh smaller than it would have been so it seemingly like in terms of the story it just didn't didn't affect like it, it wasn't crisis was averted in terms of the story
1: yeah yeah um so a couple of big things happened leading up to this though because like it talks about um the president agrees to to cuz they think that the cities and the the soviet city is going to get destroyed so pro, in a preliminary agreement the president says you can have Atlantic City and he starts evacuating it and the russians are like actually we got a we got a submarine off the coast and we're going to b- bomb it in 15 minutes which is They have not had enough time to evacuate it. And they're like preparing to do that. Right. So all this comes down to like seconds of of, of minutes of of windows of of things being averted. Um, And then there's like a moment where the Soviets were going to do it anyway. And then but
0: then they don't. What was the reasoning for Atlantic City? And and how did you feel about that being chosen? (laughs) Um supposedly it was around the same population and I think
1: they chose it because it was like in a zone where they felt like the ecological damage would be lessened and with the way the prevailing winds are the fallout wouldn't be as bad. Um I don't know how accurate all that is. It seems to me like some of this stuff was poorly understood anyway. Um but uh I mean it's it's one of those things where it's like there's no good decision. And this is what we were talking about earlier. Like, how do you make how do you possibly make a decision like this? How do you if you had a list of cities and someone says one of these cities has gotta go, you know what I mean? Like how do you just go, yeah, this is the one? Like, did you have a bad day gambling at Atlantic City? So you're like, fuck that city, like how do you choose?
0: (laughs) Right. Um it's yeah, you can't. It's crazy.
1: The the tragedy of the actual plane is, is really engaging to me. We see we see Brown the this pilot. He actually like powers through to the bitter end, um, releases the bomb, and then it's said that he dies before the second guy can even hit the button to like fully release the bomb, and like that 's how close it was and how much he was just like g- giving everything he had to get this mission completed and so that 's the dark side of it too it 's like you see these heroic efforts by this crew, and yet you know it 's all for nothing, and not only is it for nothing it's it's like in the wrong. <laughs> Um, But it's not their fault, but it just is.
0: Yeah. It was a cool way to tell the story because it just, it made us care about these characters and it gave us kind of this like, you know, we want them to succeed, but we don't. I kind of talked about it earlier. Just this idea that like they're, they're doing everything they can. And then, and then ultimately like we need them to fail, uh, but i wanted to talk about yeah. the the like you said it's coming down to seconds and and moments and and this atlantic city thing the russians almost attack it and it's within like a couple like a minute or two that like they call it off just in time and everything's happening like right in the nick of time so it's very thriller ish like it's clearly yeah. a like a very thriller thing to do like get it up to the very last possible second and snip the wire to the bomb or or whatever it is you know i don't know if i buy that you know t- even take
1: trump out of it let's just say you know like average U.S. president from the last 50 years or 20 years, have you, what have you, would 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 a president make this sort of decision? Because I kind of don't know that they would. And I feel like, although in this scenario you, you understand why he decides to make this trade, it just seems to me like there'd be no way that they'd actually agree to this. And if it came out that they had, I, I don't know that they, you know what I
0: mean, I don't know that the public would ever... Go like, oh, yeah, we totally get it. You know what I mean? It, but we're talking like, let them attack something or end the world, you know? And that's yeah. the thing. is like, I don't know that I buy it either. Maybe the president, maybe a president would say just like, fuck it. We're not going to sacrifice our own people. We're going to let the whole world d- die or something. like I don't know. Yeah. But with the, uh,
1: like, would the Russians actually kill the world over the one city? Would they be? But maybe it's like, we got hit, so we're going to go to war and whatever happens, happens. That yeah. was the big question that no one knew, and like, luckily, no one had to put it to the test of like one of one side actually detonating a bomb. Um, that's the scary shit, though, and like, that was what everyone was worried about. Like, what would happen? And and this question, this book asked that question. And I think it is a you know a good question to ask. Um, did you think that the bomb was going to go off in the end?
0: Yes, you did. Yeah, I'm not going to give my reason, but
1: <laughs> yeah, I kept I kept expecting them to to in some way. Like get the message there, because the other thing is like I don't know, I guess I'm kind of glad I didn't have to see it, but i I kept expecting we were going to get a scene where the the crew of the Alabama Angel all of a sudden realize that everything they've done has been for nothing, yeah,, that but heart- almost heartbreak. mercifully they don't have to they don't have to experience that, right, yeah, um, so they can go
0: out believing themselves heroes, yeah, it's like a mercy to their character for that, it's like that, like you said, yeah. like the they died heroically and they did all of these things and if they did know that they were failures in the end like how much more that's a lot more dark and maybe that's not what peter bryant or peter george was going for
1: there's some good writing in here too like there was a moment where brown um he he felt like an itch in his in his toes and then he like tried to move his toes and he couldn't move them and he tried to move his foot and he couldn't move that and then he was like realized that his leg was dead he's like oh my leg my leg's dead now um, and that wound I have must be worse than I thought. And, like, that was just so dark, and, uh, you know, the way it was written was, was affecting.
0: Yeah, I was surprised. for As much as I said, like, in the beginning, I mentioned that I wasn't fully engaged all the way through, it was a thriller. Like, it did keep, when when it was going, it yeah. was going, definitely. I think that the, the scenes that Especially were... Especially the last, like, um, 20, 25%, I think. It, when it's tense and everything's going off all at the same time and, and it's coming down to seconds, it's, it's it does its job as a thriller, for sure yeah oh and we do
1: since this book was written in the 50s um in case you were wondering we do definitely get some casual unchallenged misogyny (laughs) (laughs) just just thrown about between these guys um i I mean i'm not shocked to see it in there i'm not saying it's not authentic to what these characters would think and 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 how they would feel but you know we also get it from the ambassador and and i don't know there's just um it's, it's I, I've, I've come to expect it if you read a, a book, you know, set in these times by, by written by a white dude. Um, and that's what this book is. So we ultimately do get it. Um, so be aware of that if you're ever going to pick up this book too. Although it's not, it's not, uh, we've seen worse. It's not, it's not, it's not like awful, but it's in there. But yeah, man, that's, that's Red Alert. Um, yeah, I, I, it was, uh, I'm glad I read it. It's kind of reminds me of, uh, as most similar comparison I have is um, Nothing Lasts Forever that we read for Die Hard in the sense that it's that it's a book that I feel like has largely been forgotten, um, different tonally than the than the famous adaptation, which was the same thing in that book. Right. Um, and while I still both of these books, um, I kind of think of them about the same as like they were both kind of OK. Um, I'm still glad I read them both because it's given me a cool perspective on a famous movie. And uh, um, I think that's what this podcast is, is kind of about. Right. And and um you know this is one that we definitely aren't expecting everyone to have read with us but hopefully that you know we can provide the service of telling you what this book's like and what it's about and now you can know about it so um yeah in that sense i, I had a lot of fun with it
0: yeah i i, I enjoy it for the same reason it's it, i love how dr strange love and i think bringing the context of of what i know from the book and and seeing first of all, seeing Kubrick's process through through this serious book and bringing it, making it satirical, it's going to be really interesting to, to key into the exact specifics of what we read in the book and what he pulled over and what he left out. I really enjoyed it, and I definitely did compare it to Die Hard as well. I, I felt myself being like, I felt very similar, like you said, to, to how I felt when I read Die Hard. It was just like, yes, yeah, it, it was fine. It was a thriller. There were parts that I liked about it. There were parts that were thrilling and did it, did it really well, and then there were parts that were just... Uh, typical uh, thriller fare, I feel like. Yeah. So it was a cool experience, and I'm I'm really looking forward to watching the movie this week. Me too, man. And um, shout out to our mutual friend,
1: Tom. Um, he's actually the person who uh, introduced me to Dr. Strangelove, the movie, he insisted that I needed to watch it and got me to watch it. Um, and uh, hopefully he listens to this episode because, uh, you know, I definitely know a lot of what I know through him. So hopefully he enjoyed it.
0: Very cool. Yeah. Shout out to him, man. <laughs>
1: um, if you wanted to find out how to become a patron go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film and you can find out what sort of bonus stuff we're offering on there we do bonus episodes every month we're gonna have another one coming out this month and remember we have that special offer going as well um, up until august 11th so if you're thinking about
0: it definitely look into it now connect with us on social media we're on facebook twitter and instagram all of those Ink to film and make sure to join our our council of inklings on on facebook because that's where we post polls and post adaptation news and all kinds of stuff that'll keep you engaged with what what we're potentially going to be talking about or maybe future projects.
1: And the other way you can help this podcast out for that doesn't cost you anything is leaving us a rating and review on either iTunes or Facebook or wherever you can like talk publicly about it. Um, that always helps us out. And also just like telling a person like that, you know, um, word of mouth would be, you know, great. We, we heard a story today or I, I heard a story, I guess it was yesterday. Um, one of, on the Council of Inklings, someone who got introduced to this podcast through a friend of theirs, and I love to hear that sort of stuff. So hopefully, hopefully we can get some more of
0: that action. Yeah, definitely. Thank you to Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts, and thank you to Multi Music for the use of our intro and outro music. Yep. All right, man. I think
1: that's going to be it for this week. I'm excited about Doctor Strange Love. Um, I I haven't seen it in a long time. Eager to watch it again. I know that Kubrick's going going to be an interesting director to, 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 to follow so I'm curious to see what kind of research you can you can come up with for it
0: Yeah definitely and this is early earlier Kubrick so it'll be it'll be really cool to, to kind of see where he was at at this point in his career. Nice all right man I think that's it so until next time thanks for listening.